Hey, welcome to Transform Your Workplace. It's your host, Brandon Laws. Thanks for the download today. We've got a great episode for you. Today's episode is brought to you by Zenium HR. Learn about Zenium's complete HR plus payroll solution at zeniumhr.com. And don't forget about our new learning and development programs. We have a subscription model where you can get access to virtual workshops, unlimited for you and your employees, as well as e-learning courses and tons of micro learning. Learn more at zeniumhr.com. Today's guest is Dan Strode. He's the author of The Culture Advantage, Empowering Your People to Drive Innovation. And we had a great discussion about what it means to build a great culture. And we spent a lot of time talking about how the fourth industrial revolution is creating rapid change amongst organizations, their competition. And so it's just creating a lot of change and has forced a lot of leaders to have a growth mindset. So we talk about how creating a great culture is really tough work. And Dan talks all about it in today's episode. I really hope you enjoy this. If you're not a subscriber of the podcast, I would love for you to subscribe and and check out every episode that we run every Tuesday. And be sure to follow me on LinkedIn. And I love hearing from listeners as well. So reach out to me on LinkedIn. All right. Have a great day and enjoy the episode with Dan Strode, the author of The Culture Advantage. It's a pleasure to have you on Transform Your Workplace. Thanks for coming on the show. Thanks a lot for having me. I'm super delighted to be here. And really, on this podcast in specific, it's my absolute pleasure because first and foremost, I am a listener. And I, and I love that. Well, so you, we're here to talk about your book. It's called The Culture Advantage, Empowering Your People to Drive Innovation. And you talk early on in the book a lot about like just the change that's happening around us the pace of change. Uh, there's a quote that I pulled that I think I, I want you to unpack a little bit. Uh, the quote says, the pace of change has never been so fast, yet it will never be as slow in the future as it is today, end quote. So unpack that. What do, what do you mean by that? Yeah, absolutely. So I think this quote's really, really important for people in companies to, to get to grips with, because if we look at historical trends about the most successful companies in the world, so let me take the S&P 500, for example, and we go back to the 1960s, companies were outliving humans. And since then, the table has turned. So now humans are outliving companies, but it's not even close. So the average lifespan, thanks to great medical advances, has now pushed to about 83 years in most countries but the average lifespan of an S&P 500 company is less than 20 years now so what that means is five years in the future eight or nine out of the 10 companies that first come to your mind will no longer be those big companies that you can think of and to me that's pretty scary and pretty frightening and it's all because the rate of change is coming at us so fast we used to be having industrial revolutions um you know the steam engine for example or the internet and it was just one technology happening to us at a time but we're now in this fourth industrial revolution where you're having 3g artificial intelligence robotics all sorts of technologies all happening at the same time which means the pace of change is becoming exponential rather than just one thing at a time and 
unfortunately or fortunately, we have to adapt and we have to change. And if we don't do that, we will go out of business, I suppose. A lot of business leaders, they quote the book uh, and it's talked about a lot is um, good to great. And I remember reading that in my early 20s thinking like, wow, nine out of 10 of these companies don't aren't really around or relevant anymore. And I think that's kind of what you're saying is some of those companies, they, they may have really good components, but they're missing something that allowed them to continue to, to grow into the future. Is that what yeah, we're talking about here? Com- completely. And I think back to my favorite companies of my childhood and they were blockbuster video that we all know was overtaken by Netflix. They were Nokia, the mobile phone company. I played Snake on the mobile phone for hours, but they went out of business or changed completely. Um, And even Kodak, I used to love going into the local chemist to process my Kodak films and my photos. And they, of course, were disrupted as well. And I think when you think about those examples, you realize well, wait a minute, if it can happen to people who had 50, 60, 70% market share, then it can definitely happen to me as well. You talked about this fourth industrial revolution. Let's unpack it a little bit more. Uh, what's what's made up of, of this fourth industrial revolution that's been different from that, that third? And how is this creating such rapid change and even competition amongst other organizations? Mm. So I think there's three things at play here. The first is technology. So as I said, you have a swathe of new technologies coming in all at the same time. And that, of course, means we have to embrace technology and go as fast as we can there. But the second change really relates to customer experience and expectations. And for me, what I see here is customers are no longer judging you against your direct competitors. They're actually judging you against their experiences in general. So when I look at my industry banking, why does it take a bank seven to 10 working days to reissue a debit card when Amazon can bring my groceries within an hour? And that's the customer experience and the expectations. So people are saying, give me hyper personalized products and services at a super low cost that are completely digital. And then the third thing is with regards to competition, your traditional competitors are no longer your only competitors. And there's probably very few businesses that Amazon hasn't tried to enter and entered into successfully. And there's probably very few businesses that other companies are not going into. So again, if I go to finance, you look at Apple and you realize that they have something called Apple Pay, which I'm sure you've used and all the listeners have. And that's their entrance into finance. Well, who would have thought that a mobile phone company or a PC company manufacturer was going into finance. So suddenly you're no longer competing with who you thought your traditional competitors were. And the world has become much bigger as a result of that. So to keep up with competition, we've got to innovate and we've got to change and keep up. What's the secret ingredient to innovation? Yeah. So you teed that question up really well, because of course, the secret ingredient is culture. Um, I'm really, really lucky and blessed that I've managed to follow my passion product or passion project, should I say, which is culture and corporate culture. And I went around the world studying what made companies great at innovation. And it became clear to me that it wasn't the amount of money that you had. Certainly, it's good to have money to play with, but that's not the differentiator. It wasn't the amount of time you had, because actually, when you have too much time to innovate, you probably don't innovate fast enough because you don't have pressure. 
And it wasn't really the resources and the people you had either, because talent is more or less democratized now. It's accessible globally uh, online to everyone. So in the end, what it came down to was the companies who had this culture of innovation. So they had a willingness to have psychological safety in their company, for example, to take risks and try new things without blaming one another. They had a willingness to embrace technology and run towards it as opposed to fearing it and thinking that it was their competitor was going to put them out of business. So those kind of components really make companies innovative. And actually in the book, I managed to distill that down into eight areas of innovation. Yep, and we'll definitely get into that. Let's back up a, a hair, though. You had a, a great definition, a non-academic def- definition of, of culture. Do you remember what, what you said in the book? Yeah, so I use this a lot. It's, to me, culture is the way we do things around here, but especially when no one is looking or listening. And as I say, it's always that end part of the sentence, which is really important to me, because I think any company can post a corporate culture on their walls and say, here are our values, here are our behaviours. But if you don't actually do it, and do it because you believe it's giving you value and you want to do it, then it's not going to work. So if one of your values is just to smile, and you smile because that's your value, that's not going to change anything. But if you smile because you believe in your heart that that makes the customer happier, then that's going to change everything. So you have to do culture because you think and you believe it's going to add value to your business. Yeah, I always think about organizations that just throw it up on the wall, uh, meaningless words, but they don't integrate it inside their organization in terms of like actual repeatable practices. I always think of like, you know, performance management and hiring, like asking questions and, and making sure that the core values are woven into the questions and recognition and appreciation. I think that's another way to identify like, hey, I caught you doing something that aligns with the way we we believe around here um, and just keep reinforcing that. I think that's where companies go wrong, don't you think? Yeah, completely. I think when it comes to recognition, it's a great example because I always say what gets recognized gets repeated. And if you want to build a culture, you have to praise those moments where things go right and where things go wrong, but you've done it with the correct behaviors and correct values underlying those. Things. So it's true. You can start to change your culture tomorrow or today. That's not a problem. But you also need to have patience. You don't just have all of the ingredients when you're baking a cake and expect the cake to be made straight away. It does take time. And for me, it's the same with the culture. First, you need to decide what should our culture be. Then you move into an education and an awareness approach or status where people just see the the values on the wall and they start to get to know them and be familiar with them. Then you move into, okay, let's change the processes. So let's change performance. Let's adapt our reward and recognition. Those kind of, you know, policy or process actions. And then you get to the holy grail, which is now we're living it and we're really day in, day out displaying those behaviors, that culture. But it's a process and it does take time. Yeah, sure does. So if, if an organization, they're, they're sort of looking at like, okay, we're not getting the business results, maybe we're, we're losing people, and there's something just off about the culture, what are some ways to assess our current state, whether it's asking self-reflective questions, uh, looking at performance indicators that might indicate that like, hey, we need to change something about our culture, it's not, it's not aligned with where we want to go as a company, like, how, how do you assess that? Yeah, so... 
I mean, there's many, many assessment products on the market. There's very complex ways of assessing culture. And of course, you can do two things which are pretty simple to do as a first step. I would say first is, if this is your feeling and your sentiment that something's wrong in the culture, you're probably right. But you can double check it by asking a few people, how, how do you feel today? What are you observing? And really see, is the environment happy or is it a little bit toxic? Of course, that will give you the indication. What do you have to do? But I love taking the proactive or positive approach to this. And I have three questions that I typically ask individuals or company. The first is, what does it feel like today working in this place of work? in this company and here you get those feelings from people so you either find out that it's open and inclusive or you find out that it's closed and dismissive and then that gives you an idea obviously what you need to work on but then you ask the second question which is what would you like it to feel like in this company and that gives you the clue of direction of travel what we need to improve upon and why and then the third question and this is the most powerful question is what do we need to do in order to get to how you want it to feel like? And your stakeholder group, be that your employees, your customers, your shareholders, your communities that you operate in, whoever you ask that question to will help you map out the actions you should be taking to improve the culture. And I think for me, that's a much more human approach to it than sometimes trying to quantify everything in with numbers and detail. Changing a culture, especially the larger an organization is, is really challenging work. As you said earlier, it's a process and it, you can't just throw all the ingredients in at once and expect you know the cake to be made, so to speak. So what are some of those levers that, uh, you know, when, when looking at changing a culture that we can pull on to make sure that we're, we're changing it um, thoughtfully and in a, in a process-oriented way? Mm. I think if you do start with those three questions, um, that helps you assure that you have buy-in from the stakeholders. So you have buy-in on day one because it's something that the people have designed. And I think that's really important because we all know that between seven and eight change management programs fail because there is a lack of buy-in from the people on the shop floor. So I think the earlier you can engage people, the better. And the more you can take the feedback from them, the better. And then the second thing is really related to leadership. And I can't stress how important this is. It's very, very important that leaders walk the talk and they believe in what you're trying to do here because any cultural transformation where leaders are just, again, politely nodding at the behaviours and the values but not really displaying them or believing them themselves is doomed to failure. You will never be able to overcome that. So you should start top down and bottom up and go in both directions, I think. You've got a chapter on growth mindset and how it's really helpful to nurturing a culture. And I remember reading the Carol Dweck's book on, on mindset and just so inspirational. I think like if, if you can have a culture that values a growth mindset, I think really transformation can happen. So what sort of things might be a result of people having a growth mindset? How does it nurture a culture? Mm, I love that. And I love that book by Carol Dweck. I guess if I have to recommend one book, it is always her book, because I think as an individual and, you know, I'll be very selfish and say, what do I want in my career or my life? I need to grow and I need to have that growth mindset. So for me, um, reading that book really helps put me in a place of, OK, we can learn, we can change, we can adapt as individuals and as company. And I think if you want to change as a company, you do need that growth mindset. And the key and the, the pillar that sits underneath it is, have you built psychological safety 
into your environment. And that is the responsibility of the managers, but it is the responsibility of the company to build those environments. And what you want is you want to build an environment where people can take risks, they can fail without being punished, they can try new things, they can grow. And that all comes from having this growth mindset of realizing we can change as individuals and we can learn new skills and we can try new things. But it's hard to do, of course. So what I like to tell people is perhaps you can try three things. The first is make sure that your leadership team or your managers don't rush to give advice to people. So the old style of leadership was always, I have a problem as an employee and I go and knock on my manager's door and he or she gives me the answer. But that's not the style of today and that's definitely not a growth mindset. The growth mindset approach is, I will listen to your problem and I will help and coach you so that you find the answer and the solution. So if you do that, you're well on the way to having psychological safety and, and growth mindset in your company. The second thing I would always encourage everyone to do is make very clear your expectations and responsibility. So if you want innovation in your company, you need to make that clear. Brandon, I want you to come to me every single month with one innovative idea. And it doesn't matter if it's a bad idea or a good idea. We will judge that at a later stage but you must come to me with the idea. And by setting those rules and boundaries at, you know, up front, you start to create that safety and that growth opportunity. And then the third thing I would do is I would really, really focus on having companies where the leaders are having courageous conversations. So where people are being true to themselves. And I don't mean that you have to have an all-hands meeting and tell people what flavour pizza you ate last night. I mean you have to have an all-hands meeting or cancel that meeting and send an email to everyone saying, I'm really sorry, my child is sick in the hospital and I can't do it today. And by having those courageous conversations, you start to build trust. And when you have that trust and that safety, you can have the growth. So I think you have to try to do all of those things. And the best company, or one, one of the best, because there's loads of great companies doing this, American firm, Ben & Jerry's Ice Cream. And I know everyone will have eaten Ben & Jerry's Ice Cream. You go to their head office in Vermont, in the US, and as you walk in, you see a flavor graveyard. So I don't know how you call that in the US, but the tombstones or the headstones in a graveyard are visible to you as you walk in. And on each headstone, you see a flavor of an ice cream that Ben & Jerry's brought to the market, but failed to be profitable with and, and took it out of the market. So if you're an employee or a customer or any sort of stakeholder going in there, you say, hold on a minute, they're really celebrating intelligent failure around. To me, you can grow in that environment. That's incredible. I had, I had not heard that before. And I think the, the vulnerability of the failures and celebrating those to some extent and learning from them, that is, that is key to having a psychological safe environment. And it's really interesting to me. Like every time I've, I've talked a lot about culture on this podcast and every person I talk to, psychological safety is a foundational component. So it's like, if you don't have that figured out or you're not working on it, none of these things are possible. Like the growth mindset, the, the building a strong culture, attracting and retaining people, business growth and results is just not possible. I mean, it maybe to an extent, uh, short-term results, but I think long-term you're really setting your culture up for failure. Don't you think? Yeah, I completely agree. I think that's probably 
one of the two foundations that I see at the moment. So if I have to choose from the eight principles in the book, having that growth mindset is definitely one of the foundations. And then the second foundation, and I know you haven't asked, but I'll jump in already, is embracing technology. And I really see this one as something coming onto companies' radars right now because there's two ways of embracing technology. One is you can do it proactively and one is you can do it reactively. Of course, proactive approach is probably better than being reactive, but, you know, both work. And there's two really great examples. Again, if I think about the finance industry and banking, who has used an ATM, an automated teller machine? Probably 99% of the listeners have used one. There's always 1% very strange people who haven't. But this, when they first came out in the 1980s, were a scary thing. Many people said, oh, this is the end of bank branches, everything will close, and so on and so forth. Well, actually, the reverse happened. Bank branches increased 57% in the coming years, and the population only increased 21%. So we saw bank branches opening at a faster rate than the population. Why was that? It was because the technology made it cheaper to serve the customer. So the cost was lower which meant we could have people serving customers with higher or complex value-added transactions and therefore increase the margins, increase the customer satisfaction, and so on and so forth. So technology was our friend, but of course, at the time, everybody thought it was our foe. So that was a proactive use of technology, and I think one that we've benefited from. And of course, there are hundreds, thousands of examples like that. And then on a reactive way, there's a great company in China called Lin Quinjan. It's a cosmetics company in China. And they do what I like to say, they digitalize their value. And they did it in a reactive way because of COVID. So COVID hit and suddenly overnight their stores had to close. And as you know, in China, the lockdowns were very, very severe and sweeping. So they lost 98% of their revenue overnight. And the chairman wrote to the employees and said, well, we have two options. One is we close the business now or we fight and we try to find solutions. And the employees wrote back saying, dear chairman, we want to find solutions, we want to fight, we want to keep this company going. Why don't we use technology um, and partner with the WhatsApp equivalent in, in China? And they partnered with this tech platform and suddenly overnight they transformed their store salespeople into online influencers. And I'm sure Elon Musk is gonna do this with X, but it's a one-stop shop in, in China. You can buy products through the WhatsApp and it's all connected to your banking infrastructure and it's seamless. And these people would come and they would do live sales events showing customers how to apply the makeup, take off the makeup. And what they found was in a two-hour live shopping event, they sold more units of cosmetics than four of their stores did in a month. So they embrace technology, as I say, in a reactive way, but really digitalize their value. And I always, always encourage companies to think, how can we digitalize value for our customers as much as ourselves? Yeah, that, like the thing about embracing technology, especially with this whole AI conversation that we've been having over the last year, there's a lot of people that are fearful that it's going to replace jobs. And, and that may be true, but if I think if we use it as 
reducing the mundane tasks or using it as an assistant in a lot of ways, then we it frees our people up to focus on the experience that we can deliver, whether it's in a service or like how you just described with that example of the Chinese company, like very interesting. It frees, technology allows us to scale and allows us to, to free ourselves up for higher and better use. So quite frankly, that's, that's the nuts and bolts of it. Completely. And I think if you look at who are the people or companies doing great with AI right now, they're the ones who are working in partnership with the technology. So as you say, maybe in 30 years time, it takes all of our jobs. Fine. I'm, I can't predict 30 years in the future, but I can definitely say in the next three years, those who partner with the technology will be the winners. And I don't think the jobs, yes, they will change. Yes, some will go away and some will be created, but it's not going to be widespread. I mean, you look at the internet, we had the same exact questions and doubts about the internet. And McKinsey did a study a few years after the launch of the internet, and they found for every one job that was destroyed, 2.6 new jobs were created. So again, embracing technology, especially for those who were early to the party, was very, very valuable. As you said earlier, you've got eight elements to to this um, idea of innovation and culture. I'm not going to be able to hit all of them. Uh, we've got a little bit of time left, but I want to hit a couple of things more. Uh, one of your chapter titles is Put People First. And I love this because people first is actually a core value to the company I work for, Zenium. And um, I, I just, I love that. So what does putting people first mean to you in terms of behaviors, actions, any of that? Yeah, I, I think this one really came to the front of my mind during COVID and the pandemic, actually. I kept thinking, what are the great companies doing? Well, they're looking after their employees, especially in periods of uncertainty. And I'd seen there was always this debate about, oh, our company's having to close or we're not having any revenue this month. So can we fire all of our people and then rehire them later? And I just thought this was not a humane way to treat people. This was not the right way to treat people, even though, yes, it's painful for the company to lose revenue, of course, and still have expenses. What is the correct behavior? Without your people, you are nothing. And especially when it comes to your culture, because at the end of the day, your culture can be written into a policy but the policy is not alive. It's the people in your company that are alive. So I really, really do think you have to put your people first. You have to treat them exceptionally well. You have to make sure that they can live your behaviors and your culture and your values and be ambassadors for your company because you've given them the environment and set them free. We're no longer in this micromanagement world. We're no longer in the world where we have to check the productivity of everybody and measure the outcome because they're 10 hours in an office. We are, we are much more output-based now. Have you done your work and committed to doing what, you know, delivering what you said you, you would do? That's much more important, but it means you have to treat your people as individuals. And the second thing on my mind here as well is we are in a workplace with six different generations in the workforce. But actually, just saying that these six generations want something in specific, for example, Generation X wants this, Generation Y wants this, it doesn't work for me because everyone is individual, everyone is specific. Maybe when you're 20, you have your first child, or maybe when you're 40, you have your first child. Maybe you get married or remarried when you're 60 and you're in the workforce. These things can happen at unusual times in people's lives now. Times that now become more usual, but typically 10 years ago, you had to buy your first house when you were 20, you had to be married at 25, first child at 30. Whatever those rules of society were have gone out of the window. 
So when you think about your employee value proposition, it has to be so tailored and individualistic. And I think that's just the lens I look through it. Put your people first and really care about them as individuals. Something that I think is really powerful in, in building a culture and still in collaboration and engagement is implementing appreciation and recognition programs, whether it's like at a simple tactic tactical level or a you know full-on recognition program what are some creative things that you've run across over the years about recognition and appreciation mm. i i think you know really something that gets traction is peer-to-peer recognition so just recognizing um, when people display the behaviors or the culture or do the effort that you want them to be doing in the moment real time because again as we already touched upon what gets recognized does get repeated and i think that helps reinforce the culture so that's really great then of course you can go all the way through to monetary recognition or taking people to sports events and those kind of things but i think you don't have to do that i think sometimes it's just nice to have a personalized email or letter from the president of your company and sometimes those things you can underestimate the impact and let me tell you if um if you work in a in a bank branch in the middle of let me think of a place i've been to minnesota you work in the middle of nowhere maybe maybe the listeners are going to correct me on that there was not many people around when i was there so you work somewhere somewhere very remote but you find the president of your company writes you an email saying dan i'm really impressed i heard about this special sales that you did with this customer or the way that you looked after this vulnerable client i've had great feedback and i appreciate you and i appreciate your work that not only boosts my morale but i can assure you i'm going to go and tell my whole team who is probably going to tell some other people as well and you can suddenly start boosting the morale and changing the behaviors of a company through very small messages at no cost at all to the company. And I think when you repeat that a few times, you start to have, you know, a big, big change happening. And I think those things are great as well. So I always look at it from both lenses. Yes, it's great to do big financial events and so on and so forth. But sometimes it's the the smallest things and the softest things that have the biggest impact. So in, in really shaping a culture, it's a, we talked about it, it's a process. And I, I want to make sure that leaders come away from this understanding how they can take part in this and shaping the culture, because it's one of those things where we can't just write core values down and put it on a, on a wall or in a binder, and then that's it. We've got to be involved on a regular basis. So what are some ways that you, you suggest leaders get involved? Yeah. So I think depending on the stage you're at, of course, if you're early in the journey and you need to define the culture, then I would definitely have the leaders go and ask those three questions we looked at. If you already have a culture and you want to change it or tweak it, again, those three questions. But if you have a culture that's written down and you want to establish it, you have to lead by example. And what that would mean is if you want ideas from the shop floor, the next meeting you have, let the most junior person speak first. You know, things like that, very tactical things you can do to really change the culture or see it in, in life, in real. If you want people to speak up, make sure you're not the one who speaks first because everyone is going to say yes and agree with you. So those things change the dial and you do hundreds of those things and suddenly the company changes and it changes very fast and, and very significantly. And I think as a leader, walk the talk, make sure your actions are consistent with the culture and I don't mean 99% of the time, I mean 100% of the time. And if you drop the ball, 
apologize and say you know what i shouted at you in this meeting it's terrible of me i will try never to do that again i got really frustrated because this morning i woke up i spilled coffee on my shirt and then in the traffic someone cut me up but just show that you're human and you've you know that what you did isn't in line with the culture and the values and the behavior so be personable but try to live the culture a hundred percent of the time because sometimes it doesn't matter what you do it matters more what you don't do and people tend to look and they observe you and as a leader they observe you 10 times more than anyone else but they are also observing the actions you are not taking so again if you see something in your company that's not aligned with the culture and you let it go unchecked that's terrible because people will believe that you're endorsing so for example you have a great salesperson but who is a terrible um, people manager not aligned with the culture the question you have is do you keep employing them and for me it's a clear no of course you can see if they change their behaviors but if they don't you cannot employ them because you are sending the signal that it's okay to behave like a jerk towards the people as long as you're doing great business results and that destroys the culture and it destroys the happiness of the team around that person it destroys the people close to them and suddenly your company culture becomes toxic and the fact that you wanted to lose not lose one million of revenue actually means that you've lost two million of revenue on turnover on restaffing and so on and so forth so you have to be mindful of the actions that you don't take as well well dan thanks for coming on the podcast i appreciate you uh, your book is called the culture advantage empowering your people to drive innovation i encourage anybody listening if you're thinking you need a shift in your culture or you know you need to make a change in your culture, this is a great book to start with. Um, Dan, any parting thoughts or uh, point people to, to resources that you recommend? Well, Brandon, thanks for having me. Um, it's been a super, super enjoyable 30 minutes. It's gone just like that, so super fast. Um, I would just say, anybody, of course, you can get the book on Amazon and so on, but do reach out to me on LinkedIn. I'm Dan Strode on LinkedIn or my website, danielstrode.com. And I'm always, always happy to chew the fat on anything culture-related. And I promise anyone who's listened to this and has a question, I will answer all of your questions uh, with pleasure and my kindest regards. My guest today has been Dan Strode. Dan, thanks for coming on. Thanks, Brandon. The views, thoughts, and opinions expressed are the guest's own and do not represent the views, thoughts, and opinions of Zenium HR or the host, Brandon Laws. The material and information presented on Transform Your Workplace is for general information and educational purposes only. Zenium HR or the host, Brandon Laws, does not necessarily endorse any guest, their business, or any organization they represent. Discretion is advised. Please work with a trusted advisor to find a custom approach that fits your organization's needs.